Well, if you were here last Sunday, you remember that uh, it is said of Abraham that he was justified by faith. And uh, it's the first time in the Bible that that is said of anybody. Uh, He's also called the father of all believers because Abraham believed the promises of God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And here in chapter 22, we read that God comes to Abraham again, but we're not actually told when he did that. Uh, Not that it really matters all that much in the whole scheme of things. But as you heard in the Bible reading, uh, Abraham is put to the test in that uh, particular section of the Bible. And he is called upon to do something which really uh, sounds unbelievably concerning. Now, some of you uh, have uh, small children. Uh, I think nearly all of you have been small children at some stage, yes. Um, I'm not going to bring Steph up with my illustration of a baby, because, you see, the thing is, at this point, Isaac is no longer a baby. He's called a, you know, a young boy, a lad. He's somebody old enough to carry timber on his shoulders and um, uh, able to uh, walk quite a substantial distance with his father. But all of this has to do with the fact that God has shocked the world, including us, to say to Abraham, I want you now to take your only son, yes, the one you've been waiting for for a long, long, long time before he became your offspring, uh, the one in whom I promised you, know, you would grow into an amazing family, a large family, uh, numerous as the stars in the sky, which, uh, of course, if we wanted out there at night, we mightn't see that many. I saw uh, one star up there, which was cheating, really, because it was a planet, but that's another story. Um, but... Here God is telling him, you're going to sacrifice this child. What is going on? What's going on in the mind of God that he would ask him to do this? Well, the thing that we note in uh, that reading is how God's command is so very clear and very explicit to him. Take your son your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. Each word is emphasised and builds on the previous words in that particular little section. And you've got to admit that this request or demand is surprising even for us as we read it. Because nothing to this point has provided any clue that God was anything like this and that anything like this might happen. And so, you know, it's not wrong for us, I guess, to start questioning this and thinking, what kind of ogre is this God who wants us to worship him if that's the way he behaves? So I guess we're as surprised as Abraham would have been surprised to get this 
word from God. And the demand is clearly a gut-wrenching thing as it, uh, the twists get tighter with every phrase. And perhaps uh, what strikes us most about God's demand is that it sounds so seemingly absurd to what has been going on in the chapters of Genesis up to this point. Finally, the Lord God confirmed his promise and assured Abraham that Isaac would be the conduit through whom the covenant people uh, would flourish and multiply in the world. And they had waited, as I illustrated last week from this, the passage, they'd waited years for Isaac to be born. And finally, the Lord had confirmed his promise. And how could God now be flying in the face of that great promise that he made to Abraham? So the real problem for Abraham and for us is that God seemingly is contradicting his own word. Is that our experience of dealing with God? Christians today are not exactly in the same position as Abraham. Uh, he, of course, was the head of God's covenant people. And in that sense, he holds a position uh, that we do not share. Uh, but after one makes uh, certain distinctions, some hard facts remain. There are still Abraham-like situations that uh, God's people tend to face. And the text invites us to ponder this fact and this dilemma. You know, we don't share Abraham's particular trial, but we do face trials that are generic ones, really. For example, when sometimes God's ways appear not to match up with his own declared character as in this circumstance, when uh, we live in you know, the, the mess of this world and uh, we, you know, we, we might have certain views about the way that God will guide us through unharmed and yet uh, you know, when we think about world news, we might say, well, how come those young women over in the Sudan... Uh, was it Nigeria? I can't remember now, so long ago, about a week. Uh, how, you know, were they carted off by this Islamic group to become their wives, you know, and produce children for them? Why did God allow that? Uh, you know, why did God allow all manner of things that go on in our world week by week? You know, we're confronted by news that makes us scratch our head and we think, but why is that happening to people like us? And nor does it appear that our Lord Jesus Christ is any different, we might think, because sometimes in the record of the scriptures, he seems somewhat offhanded. Let me give you an example. The Gospel of John. He gets a message that his good friend Lazarus is unwell, seriously unwell. And instead of rushing off with the disciples that were with him straight to where Mary, Martha and Lazarus lived, Jesus said, it's not much to worry about. Let's just, uh, we'll, we'll get there shortly. Let's do what we've got to do here, then we can go there. And by the time they get there, they met with the shock news that Lazarus is actually dead. 
Been dead for a few days. If only you'd been here to help us, Lord, you could have made him well. And we might think at that point, why is Jesus putting this couple that he's supposed to love very much through this traumatic moment in their lives? But then all of a sudden there's a twist in the tale. Jesus asks them to roll back the stone from this grave. He's been dead for four days, they say. He's going to be a bit of a smell. Just do what he says, people say. And Jesus calls Lazarus to come out of the tomb. And to the utter amazement of everyone, there is this man who's been dead for four days, buried in a tomb, suddenly back alive. And people suddenly are shocked by who this person is in their midst. And they, if they've got eyes to see, get a little glimpse of what's going to happen to Jesus after he's been crucified. You know, there are many times, I think, when everything you thought of, you knew about God seems to be so strange that he doesn't seem to be himself. And you might question what's going on. And that's good. It makes us think. It makes us look more carefully at the Bible. It makes us read the whole passage from start to finish, or maybe the whole chapter, maybe the whole book, till we get a really good picture of what God is doing at this particular time. But in Genesis 22, at least, uh, it helps cushion us for such times because it tells us that very likely we're going to have problems with God's way because we don't understand the full story from his vantage point. And while the tension inside Abraham during that day and night must have been incredible, he nonetheless shocks us all by obeying God. The Lord makes a command. Abraham puts his life, his son's life, everything into the hands of God. However, On the third day, Abraham looks up and he sees the appointed place on the horizon. And eventually, Abraham, Isaac the boy, and the servants who've come with him just meet there. He tells them that he and the boy are going off, he saddles up the donkey, that's coming with them, and then he cuts up the wood that will soon consume his son, and he tells them, you stay here, I, the boy and the donkey are going off, and we will come back to you. And it was about 70 kilometres that they had to travel. So they're going to have to move at some kind of pace to be there in God's time frame. And uh, on the third day, Abraham looks up and he sees the appointed place. And eventually, they arrive. And here we see his obedience demonstrated in that he does exactly what God has told him to do. 
What sustains this obedience? Is it the conviction that he and Isaac will come back to the servants, as he said? This is actually what his past experience has taught him, that God is trustworthy. And even though you mightn't actually know exactly what's going on, you can still trust God that things are going to turn out in the overall way that he has talked about. The Lord could actually be trusted implicitly to work out his purposes in a way that's faithful to his word. And also he witnessed God bringing life out of the deadness of Sarah's womb. Plus there are all sorts of other reassuring things that God had done for him up to this very point that he could think about, reflect upon and say, I can trust this God. He's a promise-keeping God. And we need to note Abraham's question, of, which is in uh, the scriptures there in Genesis. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That was a thing upon which he'd built his life. Shall not the judge of this world do right? So faith, now reinforced by experience in God's nature, still anchors Abraham's faith. And uh, as Hebrews 11.8 explains, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And so it is that Abraham takes the wood, loads it on his son, he then pulls out the knife that he uses to uh, slice up animals... And together they silently walk up the hill, executioner and victim. Suddenly the boy speaks. Something's not altogether right with this little activity, he says. Father, yes, my son, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? What does Abraham say? Well, you heard it, didn't you? He says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But... The angel of the Lord called out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over And took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said that on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And so God then reiterated his promise with an oath. And Abraham's obedience is a clear demonstration of his faith. And his 
acknowledged in the Bible as such. Hebrews 11 again, verses 17 to 19. By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac and your offspring, sorry, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So that's the story of what we are thinking about tonight. And I suspect as I look at this collective body of amazing intellect that none of us likes tests. True? Some of you are old enough to remember back to high school, kindergarten, whatever. And I'm sure that when the teacher informed you that we were going to have a test, you might have thought, oh, this terrible sore throat. <coughs> and, uh, you know, try and convince your parents that you were death's door or something. You see, I think one of the problems is we think that tests are designed to actually discover what we don't know about things. Whether it's your time, you know, whether it's your tables or whether it's, you know, some great fact of European history or whether it's, uh, you know, the physical uh, dimensions of whatever it is that you might have to do with various little implements or whether it's actually knowing what different letters mean, you know, what, what are these things on that table that I can't remember what it is, you know? You see, that's, that's how we view tests. It's going to, we're going to fail. That's what they're looking for. Not what we know, what we don't know. Well, I've been informed by a teacher this morning, that's not true. They, they try and work out what we know rather than what we don't know. I'm reassured by that. But you see, this test of Abraham is similar to when God put Abraham, uh, sorry, Adam to the test by placing him in a situation where he had to trust God to provide and to have his best interests in mind. So God puts Abraham in a situation where it's difficult to believe that these things are true, that God could actually be asking Abraham to do this. But God asks Abraham to believe him, to trust him, to obey him. And where Adam failed, Abraham succeeded. Abraham categorically demonstrated that he loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, body and strength. He showed that he loved God more than he loved anything and proved that he was not in a relationship with God for what he could actually get out of it. Rather, he was in a relationship with God because he trusted God and he loved him wholeheartedly. So, how does this story of Abraham impact upon how we should love and faithfully serve God and our Lord Jesus Christ? In Hebrews 11, 17 to 19, the writer talks figuratively about this passage and says, as I read you before, that Abraham received Isaac back from the dead. 
in a manner that prefigured the resurrection of Christ. You see, the similarities are very striking. God has a beloved son, and he does not withhold his son. That son is fully cooperative. The difference is also striking because when Jesus' uh, story is looked at, there is no last-minute rescue. Jesus truly dies as the sacrificial lamb in our place. He dies for all the rotten things that I've done, you've done, going to do, all that kind of thing. That is why Jesus gave his life on the cross in order that God might look on him and not on us and have the basis there to freely and fully forgive us because he has said if you put your trust in Jesus as your saviour and Lord, I will forgive your sins and you will be with me forever in paradise. Thus the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So what God kept Abraham from doing, he himself did for our benefit. In the death of Jesus, the Lord God provides our deepest need, our need for forgiveness, for salvation, for a fresh start to be God's friends now and for all eternity. We're to put our trust in Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. We're called upon to live that out by faith, day by day, applying the truth of the scripture daily in our lives so that in every area we're living by that and not by the weird teachings of the world. And this is where the rubber meets the road for all Christians because God does test us today. He doesn't tempt us like Satan does to see if we're going to fail. He tests us in order that we might prove, like Abraham, that our faith is genuine by succeeding to follow God's desires for us implicitly. And such testing occurs when we face situations that reveal the quality of our faith and our devotion. He tests us so that he, we, and everyone else might be able to see the genuineness of our trust in God. After all, faith without works is dead. And by such means, God strengthens our faith and matures our character, leading us into a fuller assurance of his love and his kindness. In other words, God tests us for our good. So, friends, let's pray that with the Holy Spirit's guidance and strength, we will totally and faithfully serve God all our days and that we might please him in all we think and do and say and be useful to God in us serving him and thereby serving others as well 
as the opportunity arises. Because in that way, we will live lives pleasing to God and truly demonstrate that we love and trust him and are happy to do that all our days.